Welcome to our uh, webinar today. It's a, another discussion about uh, various uh, issues in viral infections in people. Uh, and I'm kind of treading water here while we get people uh, all logging on because we have a large number of people that have registered for the webinar today and uh, we want to get right into it. Um, I'm Paul Walberting from uh, UCSF and we have uh, some of our favorite uh, repeat <laughs> offenders here as, uh, as panelists and discussants. Uh, Peter Chin Hong, uh, also from UCSF, uh, uh, Carlos Del Rio from Emory, and uh, Yvonne or Bonnie Maldonado from Stanford. I'll, I'll let them uh, introduce themselves a little bit more fully in a, in a second. Um, but uh, as usual, um, things change quickly in the, in the world of COVID uh, and, uh, and other viral infections. And I hope we can uh, have, a, have a good chance to, to dig into some of that. Uh, as always with these uh, discussions, uh, we encourage you to help uh, the, the audience to participate. Uh, you can do it um, on the Q&A function on your, on your Zoom screen. Uh, chat is open, but we won't really monitor that very closely. So I think um, Q&A is a better uh, way to uh, get your questions answered. And we'll uh, try to kind of watch the screen and uh, do some of those uh, as, we, uh, as we proceed. Uh, so uh, let me have the uh, panelists uh, give a little bit better introduction of themselves uh, now. But uh, again, as a reminder, this is a program uh, organized and sponsored by the International Antiviral Society USA, uh, professional organization that's been devoted for many years now to, uh, to professional education, uh, initially with a strong focus on HIV, but over the years uh, as other infections uh, have kind of burst on our scenes. Um, uh, HCV in particular, um, COVID most obviously recently, but also MPOX uh, and others. Uh, we've uh, been able to kind of continue this discussion uh, with experts, um, uh, bringing people up to date. And, uh, and I hope this is, uh, is a useful uh, format for you. So let me uh, start by uh, going through the People again have them uh, give a little bit more background about their own uh, uh, areas of uh, career and expertise. So, Peter, why don't you start, and then I'll go to Carlos and Bonnie. Peter, um, hi everybody. My name is Peter Chenham, a professor of medicine, uh, division of infectious disease, and um, uh, also direct the immune compromised host service at UCSF, and um, have been treating COVID patients and MPOX patients during the pandemic. Thank you. Great, great, great. Uh, Carlos uh, from Emory, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're muted, I think. Carlos Del Rio, I'm a professor of, of medicine and in infectious disease here at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. I am uh, also I'm the co-director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research. We, uh, my my personal interests are in in access to care, uh, uh, linkage to care, you know, attention and care, and also in in HIV uh, prevention interventions. And uh, I've been working with uh, marginalized populations, including uh, substance users, for many years. Uh, during COVID, obviously, all of us HIV doctors became COVID doctors, and I've been uh, involved in, in clinical trials of the remdesivir trial, the Moderna vaccine study, the Novavax vaccine study. But I've also, uh, you know, been taking care of patients uh, uh, throughout the pandemic and uh, and doing a lot of, uh, of media appearances and really trying to to get information out there because obviously, you know, together with the virus, uh, there was a dissemination of misinformation. And I think uh, we have a major, major role in, in combating misinformation. And I think I, as USA, stepped into this precisely because our, our goal is to provide, you know, science-based information. I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk more about uh, that issue in particular, I think, as, uh, uh, as the hour goes on. Bonnie, uh, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Bonnie Maldonado, and I'm Professor of Global Health and Infectious Diseases here at Stanford University School of Medicine. I'm the Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases here, um, Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the Children's Hospital, and I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. I primarily work on vaccine-preventable diseases, um, primarily in global health settings, low-resource settings, with a focus on prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV 
um, measles, uh, rotavirus, um, polio, and then more recently, of course, COVID trials, uh, antiviral studies, um, prospective household transmission trials, as well as pediatric vaccine studies um, here in our uh, clinical trials research unit. Great, and and I know Bonnie, uh, you're very involved in the in the vaccine uh, uh, effort, uh, regulating uh, vaccines, and I'm sure we we're going to talk a lot about vaccines. I think that's probably one of the major uh, major issues. So, um, just getting getting started, uh, just you know, in the last day or so, we've been hearing more talk, World Health Organization and the U.S. government. Um, I think there's a growing sense that we're moving to a different phase of the pandemic from uh, from an active emergency pandemic uh, response to uh, something not exactly normal, but uh, but at least uh, rebuilding the the uh, you know the the COVID epidemic into the rest of what we're doing. Um, and somebody want to want to start this discussion about the the uh, moving from the emergency to. Uh, uh, to a more stable uh, epidemic phrase. Um, yeah, so there have been a number of different uh, op-eds and perspectives. I know New England Journal just had a little audio thing that showed up earlier today. Um, and, and, you know, this is something that I think all of us here can agree. We've been talking about this coming. Um, so I think there's a really, it's great for us to see that three years ago, well, for us, three years ago yesterday was the first case uh, identified in in Santa Clara County here in California, right, right, uh, and uh, and so th and shortly thereafter we shut down. So we are you know leagues away from that at this point. We have lots of interventions, but at the same time, there's a couple of issues that I think we, I just want to touch on briefly, and I know the others can too. One is our tolerance for this disease, which again we're now seeing between 350 and 500 people dying every day from this disease. Now, granted, it may be a specific group, a particularly more high-risk group, but even last week, we still had a child here whose family was vaccinated. The child was nine months old, not vaccinated, even though they could have been. The child wound up in the intensive care unit. So we are seeing today, uh, yesterday's data, showing that COVID-19 was the eighth most common cause of death in kids. Um, so we we should not be complacent. We I don't think we should Press the panic button, but we're, we need to start incorporating daily ways to deal with this and not just shrug it off and say it's it's over. It's not over, but we need to build in standard practices. The second thing briefly I want to talk about is the vaccine effort, which we can talk more later, but the, the issue is, you know, what did we do? What mistakes did we make during this pandemic? There were a lot of mistakes, but there were also a lot of successes. These vaccines are fabulous. I think they will continue to be fabulous. We can't expect them to make to walk on water. They, we need to make sure that people understand that we can still use these vaccines to keep disease suppression going forward. And I think that's really the message that we need to continue to use these therapies and not just throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I'll stop great. there. Great, and there's a there's a lot to talk about. Obviously, Carlos. Uh, you and I both watched a program uh, just a bit earlier this afternoon. Um, uh, with Ashish Jha, uh, who was talking a lot about um, kind of what it means to move from uh, from an emergency uh, uh, status. You want to uh, talk a little bit about that? Practically, what does it mean in terms of, oh, access to vaccines? Well, access you know, yes. I, I think, Paul, that it was good to hear Ashish, but I think it's important to mention what ending the emergency declaration does and what it doesn't do. I think one thing that it does, and the things that I'm more worried about is the impact it has on, on places like the CDC. Because for example, because of the way the emergency declaration was written, states are, are required to inform and to provide data to CDC. With the end of the emergency declaration, states can decide no longer to provide data. It's gonna be, it's gonna be just, you know, you want to, you do it, you don't. So I think we're gonna lose a lot of, of, of surveillance. I think we're gonna lose a lot of the information that we need as clinicians. And I worry about- let, 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 me jump, let me jump in, Carlos, to say kind of, haven't we lost a lot of surveillance already because of the move away from testing? Yeah, but, but, we, but we still have a lot of data that, that I think is gonna to totally go away. And I, I worry that the few data we have, the states will no longer be required. And we're gonna see states like Florida saying, look, 
we're not giving you anything, or Texas or other states are going to say, we're not going to give you anything. And I worry about that. It also takes away a lot of the, I thought Ashish gave a good example, right? The emergency uh, uh, authorization, the public health emergency gave authorization to do unusual things. So a hospital can say, you know, we're going to build, you know, ICU beds in our parking lot and, and put a tent there and make that ICU beds. And, and CMS said, okay, fine, go ahead and do that. That goes away. You can't do that anymore. And, you know, that's not bad in a way. We, we want things to go a little more to normal. The most important thing that will go away for the, the patient, for the usual, the typical individual, is many of us have gotten used to, you know, you, you go into the website and you get eight, eight COVID tests per month and you have them at home. That's going to go away. Free testing is no longer going to be available. What's not going to be a go away is the availability of free vaccines and free treatments. The government has enough of a supply right now that even though the emergency use authorization will will the public health emergency will disappear come uh, eight, May 12, May 12, you, you know, if you test positive, you're still going to be able to 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 go ahead and get your vaccine and get your 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 treatment at least for some time. How how long a time we don't really know. Now, what I worry about the most, and I think it wasn't discussed today, is you know this has been a pandemic that has shown enormous health disparities. And I just worry about the poor, the underserved, and the people that, that are gonna be left behind. And I know for a fact from talking to people at HHS that there's a lot of discussion of what we can do that despite the, the ending the public health emergency, we'll still be able to provide testing and other capabilities to people who are, who are uninsured, who are poor, who don't have access, because otherwise we will continue to see what we always see in our country, right? A disproportionate impact of disease going to the, to the least, uh, to the people that are least well off. And, and I do worry about that, especially when an administration said, we're gonna focus on health equity. So, so my biggest concern is, is that we will you know, lose any focus that we have right now on health equity. So uh, let's uh, take it into a, a, a real practical direction. Uh, Peter, um, uh, recently there's been a lot of talk about moving uh, from uh, this I wouldn't say random, but but fairly chaotic uh, rollouts of various vaccines, boosters, uh, uh, repeated injections, to something that is sounding more like uh, an annual flu uh, vaccine. You want to talk about that and what the implications are, and uh, and at the end of the day, who do you think is going to be getting an annual uh, COVID? Uh, vaccination. Yeah, so that's a really interesting topic. I think um, when the FDA met recently and the advisors, the advisor group, I mean, one thing was clear, everybody unanimously agreed that whatever system we have right now is way too complex. Nobody really knows. Even my most woke colleagues um, have to do almost get an app to figure out if they're eligible for a vaccine or not. So I think everybody agrees that it needs to be simplified. And what got lost in the complexity was that people certainly weren't getting vaccines. Even my mom, who should have gotten a, a booster vaccine yesterday, she and her friends were all discussing, like, do we really need it? Uh, you know, is there a new one? I mean, very, very basic questions that were confusing to a lot of people. So we need simplification. It's clear that the booster is really uh, prevents uh, hospitalizations, particularly for those over 65. So that comes to the question is, is a booster plan going to be going forward for everyone? Or are we going to prioritize immune compromise in over 65? Some people think that the booster should be, uh, you know, you, you concoct the formula in June, you make, you roll it out in September, you have you give it with the flu shot, maybe if it's an mRNA influence. That sounds a lot like the yeah. flu approach as well, right? Yeah. yeah. And I guess the question is, do older and immune compromised people need it twice yearly? And I think that's really the question right now. And does the general healthy under 40 year old, for example, need a shot every year? So those are the questions. And we don't have a lot of prospective data, but at least they're setting up that expectation that will be simpler for your average person to sort of grasp because 40% vaccination rate in older than 65 is really shocking and keeps me up at night. So um, uh, reading between the lines, I might guess that we're moving towards an annual vaccination for 
every adult. Uh, Bonnie can talk to us about kids in a second uh, and maybe um, even more frequent than very high risk adults. Um, so maybe we can talk more about that. And, and, and Peter, then that would be presumably the latest um, uh, version of what we're calling the bivalent uh, vaccine. Is there any change in that uh, at this point? Yeah, and the only other change that is a nuance in the meeting was that uh, for the basic two vaccines, instead of having the ancestral strain, you just go straight to giving everyone the updated bivalent booster. So, but that's essentially the update uh, from right, how right. people are thinking right now. And Bonnie, what about kids? What what's what's the kind of trend? Well, I think yeah. So I think one of the issues there has still been to convince people that children are still at risk for. Uh, reasonably serious disease and even beyond that. So again, we know that the overall death rate for kids in general, people under 18, is about 20,000 people a year die every year under 18 from all causes. So you could argue, well, that's not the same number as say you see in people over 70. It's still a large number of children to die. Now, what we saw with the pandemic, we saw the CDC data from this week showing that um, it was uh, COVID-19 was the eighth most common cause of death in kids. And if you took away accidents and, and um, other uh, in injuries, it was actually the fifth most common cause and the most, the most common infectious cause. So we need to reduce that number. And if you're just looking at uh, morbidity, um, we, we vaccinate kids for diseases that don't have that same high rate of, of death. So we have vaccines to keep kids healthy. We know that um, at least for adults, we've seen that the data on uh, in, uh, increased mortality for cardiovascular and other diseases has really gone up. Now we can't link that directly to COVID at this point, but we know that for 2020 and 2021, death rates really spiked up for non-COVID deaths as well. And we think that that can be true for kids as, as well in terms of symptomatic disease. So one of the issues is convincing families. We here in California are doing a better job. Uh, people really do want to come in and get their kids vaccinated. But in fact, 90% uh, of kids around the country are not fully vaccinated. Um, or, and, and even fewer, of course, have boosters. So really getting that we're, we're right now doing trials um, for Moderna and Pfizer to look at primary series vaccines with the bivalent um, vaccine so that we can start to have the FDA review bivalent boosters, whatever they look like down the road right? Um, for primary series. And the idea is not everybody must have it, but we need to know what we have to have in our back pocket to prevent this disease. Remember, we have vaccines for rotavirus, um, for diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. And we know that diphtheria, we haven't seen a case, you know, really very rarely, but it's still a disease that you want to prevent in kids because it's horrific. So we want to build this as a primary series platform for everybody, kids included, but adults as well. I mean, it, remember how hard it was to get adults to take flu vaccine, to even get the Shingrix vaccine. Um, and so building those platforms for all ages is going to be a real communications issue, which I'm not quite sure CDC has really um, ha optimized, but that's where they really need to go is how to convince people that we need to uh, do this. And somebody brought up a comment around anti-vaxxers, which we can talk about later, but- Yeah, I'd like to-, to convince Pete. I was on a media the other day trying to talk to a, a, a reporter about why polio is not caused by pesticides. I mean, right. we're back to square one here. So we yep. really need to get back to basic science. Uh, and I really do want to, want us to do that. And there's a zillion things to talk about. And just just uh, just to perseverate a bit here, uh, you know, th this we've been through something pretty amazing. Uh, we as people, um, and we're going to be hearing and thinking a lot about it. Um, uh, Carlos, one thing that uh, that I was uh, thinking about is kind of that one of the good reactions uh, that we've had to this is to use existing platforms uh, to, um, uh, to to test some of these ideas. And I know that you've been involved in the ACTG and other uh, other uh, cooperative groups. You talk about how um, uh, medicine kind of took existing uh, structures like that um, and kind of included COVID and how that helped our response to this to this pandemic? 
Well, you know, it's not just the ACTG, but I would say oh, that, you know, the reason the reason we're able to do, we, we made PCR testing available to everybody so quickly is because we built a platform for PCR testing in HIV, right? And now throughout the world, you have, you know, Roche machines and PCR machines that are doing viral load testing. And that became sort of part of the of the, of the armamentarium that we have in laboratories and places that, you know, maybe they couldn't do a, a blood culture, but certainly can do a PCR. And, uh, and that has made a huge difference. So we, we build on the expertise in clinical trials through, through the ACTG, the HVTN, the HVTN. In fact, the three of them came together in something called the CoVPN. You know, the, I, I, you know, the, the BTUs became involved. So, so the, the clinical trial infrastructure that we build in our country uh, paid enormous uh, benefits in, in allowing clinical trials to take place. Uh, can we make it better? Absolutely. But it was also the laboratory infrastructure, the, the community engagement. You know, I would say that it was because of the work that I had done with community around HIV that we were able to recruit minorities into, into, into COVID studies because, you know, they, they, we had those connections. We had the community participation. We had the community involvement. So, so clearly, you know, a lot of the lessons from HIV translated into, into COVID in a, in a very effective way, but a lot of them uh, did not. And I, I, I feel bad about that because for example, uh, we went into COVID into an absolute moralistic approach and to an absolutist approach. And we forgot that we needed to have a harm reduction approach. We forgot that shaming didn't make any difference that telling people, you know, just don't have sex and you're not gonna get HIV just did not work. So a lot of the lessons of, that we've learned over many years, we did not apply them appropriately. Uh, I think one of the things that I was gonna say also, uh, Paul, around vaccines, I, I don't disagree with Bonnie at all, but I, I, I do want to make a focus that these vaccines, because of the way the virus has changed so much, are not very good in preventing infection. And in fact, prevention of infection wanes away very, very quickly. What they're still very good at is preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And, and today there was an MMWR that said from WHO that said 80% of deaths globally have been in people over the age of, of 60. So we really need to focus on boosting and keeping up to date people over the age of 60. I mean, when, you know, and only about 40% of the population in the US over 60 is actually up to date and boosted with their second booster. So, you know, when a 20 year old says to me, should I get a booster or not? I say, well, you know, get it, you know, it's okay, it's not gonna hurt you. But when a 60 year old, 70 year old says, I have not received my booster, I really worry. And I think we really need to laser focus and work with Medicare and work with many others to really ensure that our population over the age of 60 is actually boosted and up to date in their immunization. In addition to that, you know, I really think that we have not done a good job in, in recognizing that, that infection actually provides a certain degree of immunity. And hybrid immunity, infection plus vaccination actually provides the best level of immunity. And I'll go, I'm gonna to recommend to people, there's an article in Lancet Infectious Disease, a very nice meta-analysis that looks at the protection from hybrid immunity versus infection alone versus vaccination that really talks about the benefits of hybrid immunity. So again, when people have been previously infected, we need to take that into consideration when we recommend boosting. And I think we've learned from different laboratories that you know, if you have been vaccinated, let's say you took a primary series, then you took a, a first booster, so you got three vaccines, then you got infected, that person is probably well protected for the next three to six months. There's not a need, in fact, vaccinating them before, giving them another booster before three months, it actually is gonna blunt the impact of that vaccination. Uh but you're not suggesting that I should go out and try to get infected. Uh, no, <laughs> right? no, but 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 at you the same not time, been infected yet, right? But you are probably one of the very few individuals out there. A lot of people globally have been infected, and that the combination of infection plus vaccination is yeah, really giving us yeah, is yeah. really giving us a degree yeah. of what I would call an immunological barrier that we need to recognize. And we, quite frankly, have not done a good job recognizing the value of infection in providing that 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 level of immunity for some individuals. Okay, um, I now, just, I'm not telling I'm, you to I'm, go get infected. Yeah, good, and I'm just kind of wondering back that uh, Dr. Atlas, who uh, was talking about herd immunity earlier in the pandemic, we, let's not go there right now. We can come back to communication. Peter, um, you're on the front lines of treatment. What are you seeing? Are you still see, seeing people getting infected? Um, and, and I'd like to talk just a little bit about uh, treatments 
Um, uh, we were talking about uh, new publications. My New England Journal today had a had a, another Paxlovid uh, versus a, a new drug, a Chinese drug. Do you want to talk about where we stand with treatment and um, who should be getting Paxlovid? Uh, one of the things that Ashish Jha was talking about today is the fact that some people wait until they get more sick and then it's too late. Talk no. to us about it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let's pick the low-hanging fruit and dispel all the myths about Paxlovid. First of all, again, just to re reiterate, we don't call it Paxlovid rebound anymore. We call it COVID rebound because of course you can see rebound with COVID in general. And, um, you know, the, the Paxlovid sort of thing in the community, first of all, still a lot of providers are not um, providing Paxlovid for patients. They said, wait a little bit. And speaking to what you said, Paul, a typical, uh, uh, common story here is wait, see how sick you get. And then maybe if you get more sick, you can get the Paxlovid. Um, you know, definitely, again, coming back to what Carlos was saying with the Lewis hanging fruit of that older than 65 population, regardless of how much you've been immunized, you know, I would not take any chances and give that person Paxlovid. I always tell people have a Paxlovid plan. Don't wait for the last minute. I've seen a lot of people blocked at Walgreens or CVS, even though pharmacists can theoretically prescribe it. In reality, it's not happening because people are worried about drug interactions and 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 so on. So have that Paxlovid plan. Um, there are alternatives, of course, molnupiravir, although recently there's been some um, chatter about molnupiravir spurring off more variants, um, but I really don't subscribe to that in a, in a sort of practical sense. And then of course, remdesivir is always an option for immune compromised folks who get worried about drug interactions, you have up to seven days. So in terms of alternatives of Paxlovid, uh, people might've seen that uh, New England Journal article about the sort of oral remdesivir VV116, fewer drug interactions and side effects from Paxlovid. Paxlovid is also getting this rap about Paxlovid mouth. I mean, I took Paxlovid. I didn't think it was that bad. Um, it, the sort of taste wears away after a while. Um, and a lot of people on, in fact, in that VA study that was celebrated for looking at the use of Paxlovid in preventing long COVID, when you look at the study in the VA population, only 20% of people who are eligible for Paxlovid got prescribed Paxlovid. So again, that's um, Paxlovid sort of like alternatives. In terms of new therapies, um, we haven't really changed our paradigm too much in the hospital, although there have been, been lots of studies uh, in Use, looking at a lot of um, other immune modulators um, and even uh, uh, the microtubule disruptor, that's an oncology drug, but they either cost too much and they're not really, um, they haven't really been integrated into regular care as much. Uh, so for me, the sort of big emphasis is in trying to identify early COVID, even though we've lost the monoclonal antibodies, um, but that's tied to diagnostics. So coming back to what Bonnie and Carlos said about losing those free tests early on, I'm worried about the fact that it will also, this ending the free testing and all that, those services will make the divide bigger in terms of severe disease because a lot of people just wouldn't get the test so they don't know that thing that they have is COVID and therefore they'll uh, progress on to serious disease. So I think what this brings up, Paul, is... Uh... Yeah. Really, sorry, from an, a governance standpoint or a regulatory standpoint, is there's no one place where we're back to where we started from. There's no one place where you can go. So FDA licenses, ACIP writes clinical guidelines, but they only talk about vaccines. And we have this giant gray zone where who helps us? I mean, IDSA obviously does, but we need some government entity that will help us do the grade, I mean, the, the process that ACIP goes through is very thorough, gives you cost benefit. It talks about all of the different ways you should measure which populations, but they're only really, they have the bandwidth and the, and the charge to just do vaccines. So when we try to include things like antivirals, there's nobody that can help us inter integrate that with our whole plan. And it really, we still really need that federal or, or some national group to tell us, here's when you balance out Paxlovid, so for example, I would tell somebody who can take it, if you're over 50, I would take Paxlovid. 
I mean, it makes sense. I mean, the risk of you getting seriously ill is not very high, but your risk, your effect size is going to be much higher than somebody under 50. So why not? The risk is very low for uh, complications. But under 50, it could be a different calculus. And I think there's nobody to tell us how to do that, especially now that we've lost every shell, really. And so, 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 no, so one, one question, one question so that I want to ask Peter that, and Bonnie we need and, and you that all. Policymaking and we need analysis that people can read and understand here's why we're recommending what so we're i want to i want to get back to uh, i'll get to you in a second carlos but i i do want to get back to communication because it's it sounds like what we clearly need um is a single good authoritative but really easy to digest source of information so um, I'm sure that CDC, AFIP, and others are, are putting elements of that together, but let's get back to that in a second. Carlos had a, had a point, uh, and then before I move on, I do want to say that somebody on the Q&A has just heard you on NPR, Peter, uh, so that's good. <laughs> Talk about communication. Carlos, you were... No, I, I think the, uh, you know, the question, the, the point I was going to make is, as you know, this week, the FDA actually remove the requirement of a positive COVID test to get Paxlovid, which I, it's interesting. And, and I don't know, quite frankly, how to operationalize that, right? <laughs> but it obviously, it's it's almost saying, it's almost gone to the back good old days where somebody came in during flu season with what you thought was fluid. You didn't test them, you just prescribed Osotamavir. But I think it's a lot harder to do with COVID. But, uh, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how we make that operational. I'm still very... I mean, I still would love to get somebody tested, and I still think there's a value in testing. And uh, and uh, you know, there's not. Well, it's important to start treatment. There's not an urgency, yeah. And and you have some time, so it's very different than than osteotomy that you have a very short window before you can start therapy. So there are a couple of questions here. I, one one question I want to ask all of you in just a second. So think about it. Uh, when do you still wear masks, and uh, who should be wearing masks? But uh, there are a couple questions, uh, Peter, on the on the Q and A about Paxlovid um, pre exposure prophylaxis. Um, should people that are traveling stock up and carry it with them? What's the What's the current status of that? Would you recommend that? That's a serious well, I'll give you question. The I know official that. statement. I'll give you the unofficial yeah. statement. Okay, the official statement is: you're from the emergency use authorization uh, only supposed to give. Paxlovid if the person has COVID. The right. unofficial statement is, of course, like any ID doc will say, I mean, we give meds to travel for lots of reasons. And the last thing I'd want to do is be stuck somewhere uh, with COVID with my elderly relatives and not have them have access to something that can save their life in a health system that I don't know and I wouldn't be able to access. Or I have to like run around and try to find some concierge doc in some random yep, country yep, yep. Um, so, so that is what i've been doing because it really it makes sense What's that, bonnie? as bonnie's saying you can't find paxlovid necessarily in yeah. these other countries as well i mean it's going apparently by by rumor i heard it's you can sell paxlovid for a thousand dollars in china but that that might be a rumor. Is it real paxlovid <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, let me let me ask about masks because uh, this is something again that came up with Ashish's discussion earlier today. Um, all right, who's still wearing a mask and when do you wear it? Let me start I'll just, with Bonnie. I'll Go tell ahead. you what I'm doing, and I, you know, we've been hearing Robert Wachtel talk about this, but you know, um, I've been traveling a fair amount. I think all of us have, but um, and I'm pretty. You know, I, I watch what the rates are locally for sure, wherever I'm going. But if I'm on an airplane in an airport, I'm wearing my mask the whole time. I'm teaching a class right now to Stanford uh, undergrads and, and PhD students. And we're recommending masks, but we're wearing them all. Because I'm not going to, I know at my risk, I mean, I'm vaccinated, boosted, I have Paxlovid uh, access. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to get sick. Why would I yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. yeah and sit in a room with a bunch of people it's winter time still so and plus there's flu and rsv it's getting better but i mean those are not benign diseases so i wear it if in classroom settings if we're outside eating i mean it's certainly not where we were even a year ago uh, but if i'm on a plane i will and and it depends on where you go right certain places if you're on certain planes everyone many people are 
other places they're not. But um, okay. I, I still think it's worthwhile. And it's not just COVID anymore. I think we're, I think the bar is lower as an infection control person. I always wanted my patients and families to come in wearing masks no matter what, especially during winter season. So I think, you know, if you can and you feel comfortable, it, I think it's worthwhile, but it's not, you know, if you're around, again, as Peter said, if you're around an elderly uh, or immunocompromised family member or colleague, you really do want to be careful. So, Carlos, Carlos you're, you're going to go to the grocery store when we're done. Uh, you're going to take your mask along and you're going to put it on or are you going to keep it in your pocket? Uh, you know, it depends. Depends when I what time I go to the grocery store, and depends who you know if it's crowded or not. I think if you're in a crowded environment, it's a very different situation than if you you know if you're in a non-crowded environment. I I do think that you know in healthcare we definitely continue wearing masks, and I think that it's it you know it's it's a place where masking has continued. But I I do want to point out that you know that there is a a recent Cochrane review again you know, not really showing a lot of efficacy in masks. And I think one of the things that we really have not had is despite everything, is the science of masking still needs to be developed. But I agree with Bonnie. It may not protect you very much against COVID, especially with Omicron being highly transmissible, but it may protect you against flu, RSV, and other things. And again, we, we, it's not just because of one virus that you're going to wear a mask. So, so I, I agree with Bonnie. I think if I'm, you know, at the airport, especially I think the, the, the two high-risk times at the airport is when you're going through the, you know, when you're boarding the plane and when everybody's crowding there in the aisle and everybody's breathing on top of each other, that's when I, once you're sitting in your seat and, you know, the, the air circulation is happening, maybe a very different situation, but but it's it's certain times that you want to be sure that you're protected and you're giving some level of protection with a mask. Having said that, you know, again, you see a lot of people masking, keeping their mask underneath their nose and all sorts of things. So, you know, we have to also, if you're going to wear a mask, you got to wear it appropriately. It has to be a good mask. But I, th I think it's, it feels as though we might be getting back to a, a situation where, um, you know, a number of people um, have been, uh, you know, I, I, without being too stereotypic, I think uh, we see in, in the in the Asian communities a more uh, use of masks. I'm talking about before COVID now, and I wonder if we're not going to Real, well, they got they got sensitized from SARS. I think yeah, they learned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Peter, what's your what's your thought? What are you doing now in terms of masking? What do you tell people? So what I tell people is again, it depends on who you are and the company you keep. If you're within 65 unboosted, um, you know, I would definitely keep a mask on if you live with somebody. And I've seen a, a, another set of uh interesting way of people that people have been wearing masks more recently, which is like they want to go to a wedding or they have like an event. And like, I'm seeing people sort of like become extra cautious in that lead up to that event because they don't want to get COVID. So I've seen in that, but for me personally, um, I agree, you know, going through TSA, boarding the plane and exiting the plane are sort of like my must mask areas. But from apart from that, I always carry it around. Sometimes people want you to wear the mask. So you want to always be ready for it. Like, going to yeah, some, yeah. Um, you know, productions and musical performances, stuff like that. And then in the hospital, we're still wearing the mask uh, all the time. So that's the thing. And then the other group I've also been seeing wearing masks a lot and have a lot of empathy for it is essential workers, because again, yeah. they're coming into contact Absolutely. with people over and over again, and they can't afford to be sick as much as possible. So mm -hmm. that's where, you know, I think we all have to have empathy for each other and who yep, yep, yep. decides to wear a mask whenever they decide to. Yeah, no, I know I've been noticing in the grocery store that I go to uh, most frequently that the staff pretty much still are all masked. Um, and I think it's, as you say, that they're exposed to everyone coming past their cash register. So I think it, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of the people coming by are not masked. Um, so that's a uh, that's an important issue. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the latest uh, variant that's uh, buzzing around. You know, we've been through so many variants. Um, what are we seeing uh, with the latest one? It seems like it's very transmissible, but maybe not such a strong uh, clinical effect. Uh, anyone want to tackle that? Yeah. So XPB one five is clearly more transmissible. If you look at the mutations and, and the data that have accumulated, it's really transmissible. There's, it's hard to know how uh, more, how more, much more 
severe or, or, or uh, it might be because we have so much immunity now. It could be that uh, our underlying immunity is better. It's just like when we had the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic that ripped through the world. Um, that's our current circulating strain now. And it's, you know, we've built up so much immunity now. It's a very different thing. So I think that um, it's going to be more transmissible. It may not be as severe. So, and, and we're just hoping, I think a lot of us are hoping when we follow next strain and uh, GOAs and others that we're, we were lucky with chi the Chinese um, big outbreak, the zero policy, the, the no policy, basically that we didn't see a weird variant pop out yet. There's some, but certainly Omicron, I think was a black swan event. I hope we don't see another black swan event like that, but you know, it's a possibility or another coronavirus popping up, but um, it seems like it's just going to keep evolving and our immunity will evolve with it. Uh, I do think as Carlos and Peter have said, with ongoing annual boosters, we can just boost up our T and B cells so that we can keep, if we get infected, we're not going to get very sick, um, even with these more transmissible strains. I mean, the cold is very transmissible yep, and yet, yep. you know, we don't, get hospitalized for that really so i don't know what so, the others think so um uh, there are a couple of questions on the on the q a about the type of mask just to just to make sure people are clear i think uh, as one uh, participant mentions the km95 and the n95 are uh clearly the way to go these masks are now so available um so inexpensive that i think um Wearing these old paper masks, uh, we should we should be moving uh, away from that to the to the to the better mask. So, when you wear masks, if you wear masks, use a good one. Uh, and as I think uh, Carlos may have mentioned, do wear it over your nose and under your chin. Uh, so uh, so it's, so it has a chance of doing uh, doing some good. Uh, one question uh, uh, that's come up uh, in the Q and A as as well as. Uh, what about seasonality? You know, I mean, over the course of this pandemic, we've been saying, well, it's going to be like flu. It's going to be seasonal. You're going to see. Uh, and I don't think we've been very good at predicting when the big outbreaks are going to happen. How seasonal is this? Well, so and coronaviruses in general are seasonal. Um, this virus has not been able to establish a seasonal pattern yet. So and we saw is that. that because, is that because we've been, is that because? because we've been interfering with its- uh, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to say. I think um, I think because it's uh, new, new, you know, new to us and we're just seeing constant waves of transmission, we haven't been able to let it settle down into a seasonal pattern. Just like with other diseases, RSV and flu tend to get their seasonal patterns disrupted when something else happens around them. Look what happened with RSV and flu in the last few years. When we had the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, we had an atypically quiet year. And then in April, way after the season was supposed to end, it just boomed. So something about that uh, year really changed the seasonality, but I suspect it should settle down into a seasonal pattern, we hope, but, but I don't know any more than that. I don't know if the others do. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I think I remind people that, for example, you know, at least with COVID, in in places like Florida, the seasonality, you know, is actually when there's more transmissions in the summer when people are indoors and with air condition, you know, in, in the winter time where it's not as hot and people are more outside, you actually see less transmission. So I think the seasonality has to do with when when we start when people gather indoors and when there's a lot of, 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 of crowding indoors and there's more transmission restaurants. Well, except that, and I agree with you, except that RSV and flu, even in Florida, they're a little bit shifted over from the other states, but they still have a seasonal RSV and flu season. So yeah, no, no, I agree, but I think COVID is very different. I'm not sure. Yeah, COVID that's what I'm saying. I don't think we have a seasonal pattern. And, 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 and yet, we, do you think we're probably going to even without that clear seasonal pattern, do you think we might go to say, let's do an annual vaccine, let's yeah. do an annual COVID flu combo combo vaccine and do it timed with flu, which is obviously quite seasonal, just to just to make again to make it clear what people should be doing. Well, that, but that that may be convenience more than science, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 saying convenience. Yeah. Um, and and sort of leading us back a little bit to something we talked about earlier on, and people on the on the Q and A have been uh, raising this issue. 
let's talk again then about communication kind of um so we can't probably deal with the people who make profit from misinformation right can't help you know we can't convince them uh is there is there a best practice uh how, how much progress are we making uh talk and i shouldn't even be asking you guys because you're the expert communicators, but uh, how do we how do we communicate uh, more effectively? Clearly, we haven't been doing a good enough job. You know, Peter, do you want, you're the NPR guy of the day. Do you uh, want to talk about that? Hardly. I mean, I think there's some basic components of um, communication. One is you don't have to stay in your own lane. I think we learned during COVID that everybody in the health sciences, everybody in this audience, could be an effective communicator, and you don't have to be the antibody expert to do that. And Ashish always talks to me about that too. I mean, um, it's really important to everybody to feel empowered to, to say the right thing. Number two is, um, I think what we learned during COVID vaccination rollout is that you need to have people from the community give that, uh, those, that communication. And we learned that during MPOX too, that, um, you know, uh, it also, you, your communication needs to be very specific. Uh, it needs to be from a trusted source. It needs to be simple. Um, uh, there was an analysis in a JAMA recent publication showing that much of the state's recommendations about COVID in various states were was above an eighth grade level using very technical jargon. So I think simple things like that can go a long way. And, um, you know, I just remember um, during MPOX um, that in the beginning, there was a very average recommendation from the CDC even, which was essentially don't do anything and you won't get MPOX. Um, but then what they did was very, you know, after Demetrius and all these people were hired, they were very, very specific to the, tar the target population. So these are the very, very specific things that you can do not to get infected. And, and I think we can learn some lessons using those, those principles. And of course, not treating every population like a monolith and not giving up. I mean, I think, um, for whatever, you know, healthcare professionals are still trusted and we can't give up the fight. We can't, you know, leave Twitter just because uh, there are people seeing lots of bad stuff unless, you know, we feel personally violated. So, uh, Bonnie, what is, what's your take home about communication? What have you learned? And yeah, you know, I how think can you help we, other people? Well, I still think we don't have a unified place where communication can pop out. So for example, we have Ashish, we have others. I mean, I think, and everyone gives very similar messages, but I don't think there's a repository there. I mean, we know that FDA does licensing. We know that CDC talks about vaccine clinical recommendations. We need somebody to decide who's going to be our master communicator. I mean, Tony Fauci did it for a while, but that was just his side job. His real job was running NIAID. So we have to ask the government to figure out where that goes. Now, CDC for the longest time had, even before the pandemic, was trying to build a vaccine confidence center to really message and be the messaging center for that. And they were working with NVAC and the rest of HHS to figure out how to do that. But when you start building up task force here and task force there, it, you know, the messages may be aligned, but nobody, you know, you're going to different people and, and it's just not that easy. And not everybody gets access. I really think it should, personally, I think it should be CDC. They're the public health arm of our government. They should have a master communications place where they really do teach people, the, give the messages, put the PSAs out and make it really viable so that people can go to one place and get all of that channeled in. So uh, let me ask, uh, so Carlos, for those that don't know, kind of lives across the street from the CDC, at least he lives in the same uh, neighborhood of it. Um, uh, so, uh, but for the, for the sake of, a, of an argument, Carlos, um, is having a communications uh, center based in the federal government uh, going to work? Um, are there so many people that have so much distrust uh, about the federal government that that's just not going to work? What, what's your thought? Because you, you're very close to the CDC. Well, you know, that is correct. I mean, I think that the best, probably the best public health communicator that I've, I've known is, is Rich Besser, right? During the 2009 
influenza uh, pandemic, he was an amazing communicator. And in fact, when he left CDC, he went on to work for you know ABC as a medical correspondent. It's not an accident. It's because what a good communicator he was, and how how wonderful he was at expressing and being simple and being clear and being being truthful. And and I think one of the things that we've lost in this pandemic is the ability to say, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. And this is what we're doing to find out what we don't know. And when we know, we'll come back and let you know. And as a result of that, things are going to change. And that that very simple message, people just simply didn't get it across. So, so we lost a lot of confidence in people. I think we need to regain trust. And by in order to regain trust, it cannot just be the federal government. It really has to be at all levels. And I think you know, medical societies, organizations like ISUSA, uh, we all have a role to play in getting communication out there. And, you know, I say that uh, uh, that you need to be you, you need to be reliable. You need to be a, a truth. You need to be honest. You need to be uh, concise. You need to be able to communicate in ways that people understand. And and we have not done a good job doing that. And I think it's because most of us have never been trained on how to communicate. So I think the most important thing that schools of public health, that public health departments, that medical schools need to do is really teach communication and how to use uh, different venues of communication to, to, to individuals. Because the reality is, you know, you may not realize you're gonna be a communicator, but a lot of people, a physician could all of a sudden be called by his kid's school or by the, the a church or community, and they have to communicate and they don't know how to communicate. Then the message doesn't get across. So communication has to be one of those sort of basic skills that we all as public public health and as healthcare providers uh, develop and develop effectively. You know, the, the, you, you see it even on a patient interaction, right? The difference sometimes between a good physician and a bad physician is the ability to communicate to the patient what's going on and what needs to happen. So communication has to be built as, as a, really as a, as a competency at all levels in, in people in medical fields. So there- And I uh, think, uh, let me just add to it. Yeah, yeah. I think both of those things need to happen. So I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have multiple venues. For, we need to have everybody. So, for example, even through the American Academy of Pediatrics, we partnered almost daily with CDC to align our messages. To, but we also worked with them to make sure they knew what we were saying. We knew what they were saying. But we still made our own messaging. And I think that's a great way to do it so that if you're, you know, if you have some degree of alignment, then at least the messaging the talking points and what you think might be coming down the road is really helpful for people to message through their own society. I'm not saying we shouldn't have different groups, but I think as a as a federal anchor, they should really be helping us put those messages out. So there's um, there are various comments uh, on the on the chat about this that I uh, I think are, are worth uh, are worth noticing. Um, the possibility of having social influencers, um, although I'm not sure how they get you know known or appointed. Um, again, with the idea maybe of taking this a little, little step away from the government, uh, another uh, of the attendees suggests the Surgeon General might have a might have a role in this. I think just as an aside that it's been interesting uh, as someone who communicated a lot in the early uh, HIV pandemic to watch um, kind of uh, the selection, the Darwinian process of of finding great communicators. And you know, I'm I'm looking at three of them right right here, but um, you know, it's, it's, it has been interesting that some people have it and some people don't. I, I, I hope it's, uh, it's learnable, uh, but, but clearly, and we can, you know, we, we know from watching all the news shows that we watched uh, who, who those people are. And it seems to me that, uh, as Carlos was saying, one of, one of the really important things is, is to be really clear about the scientific process, that it's, it doesn't give us permanent truth. Uh, you know, it gives us the best uh, estimate we have at that time and that it can change and that if it changes, it doesn't mean we were misleading people. It means that we were kind of telling the best we knew at the time with the information that we had, which was incomplete. Um, so I think there are some important messages here. And, and I'm sure one of the take-homes from this uh, horrible pandemic pandemic is going to be kind of consolidating this discussion into something more formal because we, we have to do a better job. The stakes are just too high. And, and now we have people uh, really trying intentionally to misinform the public. Um, so it's going to be especially hard to, uh, hard to do that. 
Um, uh, we're almost out of time, um, but uh, one of the questions that we've we've had, we, one of the things we talked about, I think, was was the whole misperception of Paxlovid rebound. And in fact, I think as Carlos or Peter uh, commented, it's really a viral rebound. Um, and one of the things we haven't talked about today at all, uh, maybe just a quick and, and passing, I don't think we've heard, learned anything more, but what about long COVID? Are we hearing, we're not hearing much about it right now, but uh, what are people, what are people uh, sensing and who wants to jump in and just do a quick update on well, long If you look at the long-term data sets, they're starting to consolidate some of these longer-term large data sets, the VA and others. And it's very clear that even if, if you, you know, you can't use causality, but if you look at data sets on death rates and disease rates from 2020, 2021, compared to pre-COVID, it's very clear that we're seeing spikes in cardiovascular and pulmonary deaths disproportionate to what happened before the pandemic. Um, and you could argue that, you know, people will say, well, it's the vaccine, but in 2020 it clearly wasn't. And we see, I mean, I'm not saying that it is, but you know, there's going to be those doubters, but 2020 is a pivotal year. We saw lots of these things. And the question is over time, we do have the recover trials. We're all involved with those right now. We still don't have a lot of data coming out. The latest thing I saw was that there's multiple mechanisms. We don't know how long they last. It seems like a year out, we're still seeing COVID-19, uh, long, uh, long COVID symptoms, but it's a mixed bag. It really depends on who you are and what the symptoms were. Um, there are some data suggesting that haven't been published yet. We're working with CDC that, that there may be um, uh, the, the Paxlovid uh, data. And there's some data that's published too. The Paxlovid may actually mitigate some of that long COVID. And as you know, we're doing those studies here at Stanford, but we're not gonna have the results yet to see if Paxlovid actually slows the rate or even reduces the duration of long COVID. So, but it's a real thing. And we're, I think we're gonna see um, uh, more years of uh, impact on cardiovascular and pulmonary disease, morbidity and mortality from what happened at least in 2020. So let me, uh, we're almost out of time. Peter, uh, let me uh, at least uh, ask you one last question. Um, there's a question on the Q&A about uh, vaccine mandates uh, what, you know, not talking about so much the broader public, but what about healthcare professionals? Do you think um, there should be a vaccine mandate for uh, those people that are doing direct patient care? Is that, is that worth talking about? I mean, I think it's, it's not a bad idea. I mean, we do it for flu at UCSF every year. Um, we have a lot of data now for COVID safety and um, efficacy. And, you know, it, it gives it it helps on several levels. I think individually, of course, prevents disease. Uh, secondly, it prevents healthcare professionals from, lowers the chance of them getting seriously ill, at least, even though it may not prevent infection. And it just gives more confidence and I think morale to the people that they're working in a safe environment, even though there's less data about prevention of transmission. I know that 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 is less likely. So to me, I, I mean, I. UCSF has done it and, you know, people have risen up to the occasion may not be true in all environments, um, but I, I don't think it's a bad idea for healthcare professionals. And just uh, in passing, Carlos, uh, one of the panelists or one of the attendees suggests that maybe you should be the designated communicator. Uh, you've, done such a, <laughs> you've done such a good job. Uh, uh, one of the things I always like to do is browse at the at the list of attendees on the on these Zoom calls, and it's um, I've made the mistake of mentioning people by name before. I won't do that, but some really great uh, great people um, who have contributed so much themselves to. Our understanding of of this of, of this pandemic and and previous ones, including HIV. Um, so I, I want to thank again uh, the uh, the panelists. Really, uh, you guys are really really good. It's fun to have you. You know what you're doing and you communicate so well. Um, and we'll we'll come back and and do this again uh, soon. Um, but also to thank the attendees at but especially the staff uh, of, of ISUSA, Donna Jacobson, uh, and Jose, who has done such a, a, a great job um, of, of taking us through this. So um, again, thank you very much. And on the screen, you see uh, how to find more information. Uh, again, thank you very much.
Bravo, Jose. Nice dialogue. Thanks, CJ. Talk to you soon. Good one.